Welcome to Talking Nutritionally. I'm Ellie McLean, your host and nutritionist. Through this podcast, I hope to connect you with the answers to your biggest nutrition-related questions. Each week, I interview experts in their field from training to hormone health, fertility, body composition, metabolic health, gut health, and so much more. We cover it all because it all influences you achieving peak health and performance. I hope you enjoy tuning in each week. If you do, please be sure to follow me for more via Instagram at Nutritionally. And please also be aware that this show is not intended to treat or diagnose any health conditions. And if you do need tailored support, please explore more at nutritionally.com. In episode 13, I welcome Jenna McDonald. She has a master's degree in reproductive medicine and two bachelor degrees with four majors. She's founder of the Fertility Suite and most definitely a fertility and reproductive expert. This episode places an emphasis on reproductive health, but applies to all women with a regular menstrual cycle, those looking to achieve a regular menstrual cycle, and those looking to conceive. After this episode, I'm confident you will have a better understanding of your cycle than ever before. Jenna explains the patterns of the menstrual cycle, how to detect and confirm ovulation, why ovulation is so important, and what a quote-unquote normal period should look and feel like. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Jenna. It's so great to be having this conversation. Welcome to the show. Ellie, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you today. Yes, well, we're diving into um, all the things that are topics, you know, I know you've written and spoke a lot about, so I'm sure it's an area that you're very passionate about. Um, I came across you through another podcast and I just really loved how you explained things and um, yeah, just breaking down things, making them simple, but also just the, the, um, the genuine like nature of your care and concern for, you know, women wanting to understand their menstrual cycles better was also really, really lovely, lovely. So great to have you here. Do you want to maybe just share a little bit about yourself, whether there's any little personal tidbits or your professional background with the listeners? Yeah, sure. So, well, as you said, my, my name is Jenna McDonald and I am originally from New Zealand. Um, I first started studying in New Zealand. I did a uh, undergrad in physical education. Um, I moved to Australia, moved to Melbourne actually for about 10 years. And I studied a Bachelor of Health Science with a double major in acupuncture and herbal medicine. So I graduated with that about 10 years ago and I started consulting with women about that point. About three years ago, I graduated with my uh, from my uh, master's degree of reproductive medicine, um, and I set up the clinic here in Sydney. So that we've had this, cl- I've had this clinic for about three years. This is one. This one's called the Fertility Suite, and the Fertility Suite is it's a little space here in in Manly specifically for women, and the vast majority of our patients are women who are trying to conceive. So we work with women at all different stages of their fertility um, experience. I, I don't love the word fertility journey because it makes it sound very arduous. So we say experience. So we work with women and some men, but predominantly women at all different stages. So we work with women who are, uh, are just uh, thinking about maybe conceiving soon and want to help or help and support to come off the pill or all, you know, all the way through to women who are deep in the trenches of IVF and assisted reproductive technologies. So we I set that up about three years ago. Um, and that's here in Sydney. And I do a lot of work with talking and explaining uh, menstrual cycles to women, actually. Yeah. Well, because the fertility journey starts 
way earlier than necessarily when people expect to be walking in your doors, right? Like the fertility journey starts in your 20s if you're not getting a regular period, even if you don't want to get pregnant. Like that's the time when you actually have to be thinking about, am I fertile? Oh, look, absolutely. And it is kind of a shame because a lot of women, by the time they do come see us, they've you've kind of cruised through their 20s being quite pleased about not having too many periods or having yeah. a particularly light period or, or something like this. So, um, you know, by the time they come see us, they go, oh, I want to be pregnant now. But as you just, you know, pointed out, the, the, the you know, the, the groundwork, we have the potential to do the groundwork much sooner than when we actually want to conceive. Yeah, absolutely. And it really comes down to the fact that, um, you know, our, our period is, not necessarily just about making a baby. So in our 20s, if we're celebrating not having our period because, you know, it's annoying to go to the beach or annoying to have to deal with, you know, with it when it's there, um, it's it's so much more than just whether or not you want to make a baby at that stage of your life. Yes, it will influence, you know, making a baby later in life, but it influences health in so many other ways. So maybe you could explain to people like what is the importance of having a menstrual cycle what like why does this sort of journey of fertility start earlier in life why do we want a menstrual cycle yeah look I think it's a really it's such a good question <laughs> and I think it, as you just that is a bit of a it is a bit of a, a health indicator I think yes you know we we need we need that cycle because we our bodies produce certain hormones at different times in our bodies and we need that communication between our brain and uterus for our health. So there are all sorts of positive impacts that come from having a regular cycle. Mm. And it's really interesting that, that you just pointed out, you know, we kind of think of it as being a pain. You, you know, I was reflecting on this earlier and, and, you know, I started consulting with women about this, you know, about the cycles about 10 years ago. And I think that 10 years ago, if I'd said to a woman, can you draw or, or a diagram of what the menstrual cycle looks like? I think 10 years ago, a woman would have drawn something that looked like a pill packet. So I think women would have drawn, you know, a nice set of um, 28 days and four equal lines, mm. you know, with the first three being one colour and the last line being a different colour indicating this is menstruation, mm. that really static view. I think now we would see a, a circle. I think now if I ask someone now, you know, we've got more, much more access to information now and I think the vast majority of women now would be much more likely to draw a circle you know, with one slash 28 at the top, yeah. <laughs> maybe yeah. three days of a period and, uh, you know, day 14 ovulation. So I do think we are having an awareness. I still think that the awareness is probably still somewhat too basic, causing a little bit of confusion and yeah. definitely leading women. Yeah, definitely. Some of the things that I see women getting confused with, and this is just like, you know, top of the list might be, when I say how long is your cycle, they might say four or five days. So then we have to break that down. Well, no, that's not your cycle. That's your period. Um, and, and then maybe not understanding that the start of the cycle starts at day one of the period. So then not being able to sort of calculate the length of the cycle. Um, and then the other thing is maybe not understanding like, you know, what the hero of our menstrual cycle is, which I love how you explain it, you know, which is, which is that, ovulation so do you want to talk through um what you know what that cycle is basically like what is happening between the day one and you know 
28 to 29, whatever it may be. Yeah, for sure. Look, and I think you've made some really good points. And actually, you just mentioned then people ask, you, you know, you say, oh, how long is your cycle? Mm. And people, you know, kind of throw this number out. And and in our clinic, women who haven't been tracking their cycle, if I say to someone, how long is your cycle? I can almost guarantee she will say 28 days. Yes, that happens all the time. Yeah, it's four weeks. It's four yeah. weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's 28 yeah. days. And I can tell you, you know, there was that big study in 2020, sorry, 2020, and they actually found that only 16% of women have a 28-day cycle. So we have this intuitive belief from everything that we're seeing, it is 28 days, and guess what, it's probably not, (laughs) you know. Um, Sorry. So we've just kind of taken a a little diversion there. but it's so relevant. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing. It's it's one of these, you know, beliefs that comes from probably seeing these things a lot. Yeah. You know, 28 days. Well, cause the other, like, oh, sorry, one other thing. Because the other way I see it manifest is um, some clients will say, I, I get it every month. Yeah. yeah I'm not really yeah. thinking any more in depth about it. Oh, yeah, make sure it comes every month and then I'll, you know, I'll look into it if it doesn't come every month. But we know yeah, a month I, is longer than 28 days sometimes. I agree. And I think part of it, like I think accepting that there's individual differences is, is actually a key part of the education process as well. Mm. So, um, yeah, you know, yeah. So in terms of our menstrual cycle, though, what we, what, what are we actually talking about? And, and it's funny because I don't love the term menstrual cycle. <laughs> and I think we've might've spoken about this before, Ali. Mm. I think it's a, I, I do consider it a misnomer and by no means is it becoming my personal mission to make sure that women are not calling it that anymore. <laughs> I think it's fine as long as we understand what we're actually talking about. But, I think it's a shame because I think what it does really breaks down to the observable sign, which of course is menstruation, and that's a very visible, helpful sign. But it also really uh, limits everything else that's going on. So what, what, what we're actually talking about, of course, is two different logical cycles we're talking about the ovarian cycle and the uterine cycle and when we talk about the menstrual cycle what we really kind of do is pull a few bits of both and kind of mush them together and we what we call you know the menstrual cycle so what i mean by the ovarian cycle is of course what's happening at the point of the ovary which is the follicle or the ovum or the, or the egg and the uterine cycle of course is what being at the point of the endometrial lining and both of them work, you know, in synchronisation and, and they both work by the, our, our brain commuting, communicating with our uterus. So, of course, it makes sense to kind of push them together. However, what we have to remember is that the main point is not necessarily menstruation. And for us particularly, probably you as well, in, in your work, but for us, because we work with so many women who are trying to conceive, we really want to come back to the point, to the fact that actually, you know, menstruation is a byproduct of ovulation. So what we really want is ovulation you know <laughs> okay so we know that ovulation is you know like that is the main event that's the hero of our cycle when do we expect ovulation to take place because you know textbook would be 14 days but you and I both know that it could be either side of that even within a 28 day menstrual cycle so when yes. do we expect it to happen Absolutely. And I think this idea of 14 days actually does throw patients or throws women out generally. Yeah. Certainly it's some of our patients out. And I can remember I hadn't been uh, in the clinic here in Sydney very long. And I had a patient who came in and she'd been trying to conceive for about six months. And we sat down and we looked at all of her cycle and pulled everything up. 
And we actually had almost a little argument about when she was ovulating. (laughs) And I kind of got to the point that I just said, can we just do it my way for three months? You know, she was adamant ovulating. And, And look, it was just as simple as she was relying on day 14 and she wasn't ovulating on day 14. So she was missing her cycle month after month. So I do think it's important that we go beyond just looking at, you you know, trusting that it's day 14. So typically, you know, we we would expect from day one to say somewhere between day three to five or six-ish of menstruation. Then in the clinic, so we use a slightly different cycle kind of pattern and we call it our clinical use cycle. So it is a bit of a mush of our our ovarian and our uh, uterine cycle, but put into more of a practical way that we can use it in the clinic. So we would have a menstruation menstruation phase. We would have a short post-period phase, Mm -hmm. uh, generally, hopefully, a reasonably short post-period phase, and then move into what we call that ovulation window. So typically we would expect or hope to see ovulation occurring anywhere from day 11 all the way through to about day 19 or 20 we would accept it as as okay okay and obviously however that would vary with people so what are some of the strategies that you use to determine if someone is down at that day 11 versus up to day 19 yeah so look that's really the crux of or, or the challenge for so many women and I think it's really important that we kind of break down our ovulation tools into two separate categories. So we talk about predicting versus confirming, and it can be a little bit confusing. So this makes it, I think, a little bit more simple. So we have tools that help us predict ovulation, and we have tools that help us confirm ovulation has occurred. So we've got a few. And actually, interestingly enough, there was a research paper that looked at different ways of identifying ovulation and using cervical mucus as a tool to identify ovulation was the number one way of correctly identifying ovulation. Wow. So if talk about into, that, because I find people get so confused about using this as a tool. It's really tricky. And I think mm. it's incredibly difficult for a lot of our patients who are also trying to conceive at the same time, because they're not just trying to understand their own, you know, cervical mucus. They're also there's semen involved and it makes it all very, very difficult to see mm. what's what. But what we would expect to see is as our estrogen starts to rise, we get closer to ovulation, we do see a bit of a change. So we would expect to see uh, the cervical mucus kind of start to, we'd see a lot more arrive. We'd start to see it in those first few days to be kind of thick. What we are really looking for is when the fibers start to align and get nice and stretchy, what we call or refer to as egg white cervical mucus. So mm-hmm. it's a little bit stretchy and that's a little top tip that I say for my women who are trying to conceive that semen doesn't stretch, but egg white cervical mucus or fertile mucus does. Mm-hmm. So we'd be looking for it to be a little bit stretchy. If it goes from stretchy to really watery, you are right about to drop an egg or you've just dropped your egg as soon as that goes really slippery. Okay. Now, as soon as that egg has been dropped, we would expect to see the our, our progesterone obviously takes over and we start to see that cervical mucus kind of, I, I suppose dry up would be the best way to kind of describe it because it starts to get a little more, a little thicker, the colour starts to change and we just see less of it. And that really indicates that, that's, that that fertile window is open. And theoretically, that happens to protect our bodies from ascending infection. So it's incredibly clever. Mm. Um, it is quite amazing. You know, but I, I, I cannot believe that I'm a person who says this, but cervical mucus is really quite incredible. Yeah. It is. <laughs> we know that these fibers line to help sperm swim and survive and, and, and get to the egg, and it really is designed 
for conception. So it, it, it's quite incredible. So cervical mucus is probably our number one. If you can start to learn that before you try to conceive, it's a really, really great tool because then you go in and you've already got the advantage. Mm. When, how much longer prior to ovulation would it start becoming more abundant or like changing in texture, like, um, you know, three days, two days, 24 hours? Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those things that's really uh, unique to each individual woman. So, and it really depends on how quickly or how fast your estrogen rises. So we have some women who might see this for, say, three days. We might have some women who notice it 24 hours before and they have this very short little you know, warning signal that it's about to happen. Mm. So it really, really does change. And actually one of the ways that we know that we can increase our cervical mucus is through being hydrated, which is just a crazy, like, way oversimplification. So simple, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if people come and say, I'm not really noticing very much, we say, well, the number one thing is the first fix is, are you drinking enough water? Um, and there are things, of course, that can impact that as well. You know, antihistamines, for example, is a, a, antihistamines are a good example of another you know, over-the-counter medication that can have an impact. So there are things that can impact the way that that cervical mucus is produced. Yep. Okay. But if you're tracking your cycle, like, and that's your cycle, not your period, then you yourself can start to become in tune with, you know, where yours starts to change, right? Like you can learn if you're that person who's three days prior or one day prior. Absolutely. And if you can start doing that, as I said, before you get to the point of wanting to conceive, you've already given, you've put yourself two steps ahead. Mm. So, you know, of really understanding that ovulation window. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a, t- that's a way of helping to predict ovulation. What other strategies would you use to predict ovulation? So we've got a few. So we, you can, a lot of them will try ovulation test kits. Um, and I'm sure you've worked with women who have used them as well. Yeah. Some women love them and they are fantastic for some women, but they are absolutely not for every woman. And obviously anyone that's got high estrogen is not going to be able to use these very well. So, and of course, um, polycystic ovary syndrome is a very good example of, of, you know, a condition where we would expect to see quite high estrogen. So, so beautiful, but not reliable. Yes. Okay. So they're the, 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 the sticks you'd buy at the supermarket, you know, the ovulation test sticks, essentially they are. Exactly. The ones that you wee on and they check to see your hormones in your urine. Yeah. So normally I say to women who are just starting to work this all out, you know, start trying them from about day eight, you know, in your first couple of cycles, you'll go through a lot of these little sticks, but as you get more refined and you start to understand a little bit more what's got, of what's going in your body, you you won't use as many. You'll know when you'll start to see and recognize these signs and symptoms and understand, okay, well, I'm most likely to ovulate about this point. So I'll start testing a bit closer. Mm. So again, I think they're useful, but they're definitely not a 100% reliable tool. No, I agree. Um, The other way they can be helpful um, is, you know, for those people who are really struggling with understanding what their mucus secretions are trying to tell them is that if they've got something maybe a, a, a bit more definitive, like a yes or a no, like a stick, they can then associate what the reading is on that stick with the signs that they're seeing, you know, with their changes in cervical mucus secretions. And then in time, they're not relying on the stick. They can come back to the mucus changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a bit of a reliable tool. And and on that, you know, there are here in Australia, we actually get two cycles covered by Medicare 
of cycle tracking. Now you do have to work with a fertility doctor to have that done, mm-hmm. but I've certainly worked with or encouraged women to do that just for two cycles, which so it's free. And essentially what this means, Ali, is that a, a woman can go in and have an appointment with a fertility doctor. Um, and from about day eight, they'll do a blood test and a transvaginal ultrasound. Now that gives each person a bit of information about what's going on and when that person is likely to ovulate so it's quite a definitive way again it's not 100% reliable but it's a very definitive way now when my women go my women when the women that I work with opt to, to take this route and to give that a go I would strongly encourage women to do as much other uh recording during that phase as they possibly can because it's an information gathering um exercise so the temptation is to go great it's out of my hands this month but if you can keep recording everything else that's going on it really sets you up for the following month you know perhaps when you can you know do this without that actually without that technology to support you Mm. um that's great i actually didn't know that that was something women had access to so that's really wonderful to know for those women um, who are trying to conceive any other predictive tools that you would suggest? So the other one that I suggest, that, and this is certainly not for everybody, but is uh, checking your cervix position. Okay. Now, the cervix is at the very top of our vagina, and it's kind of like the little door between our uterus and our, our vagina. So it's like a, a tiny little door there. Now, that actually, our cervix position moves throughout our cycle. Oh, again, wow. it's just amazing. <laughs> we think of this being so static, period or not period, and behind the scenes, all of these amazing things are happening. So our cervix will actually move throughout our cycle. And what we're looking for and what our patients are looking for, because, of course, trying to conceive, they're looking for the cervix being open, soft, and high. And I describe that as being a little bit like if you put your finger on your tips of your lips, you know, it kind of feels open and soft and high. Mm-hmm. Can If you try and, 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 and find this, and again, it's a hand wash, clean hands, and yes. just slide your finger in. Right. Um, once you notice that difference once you see that difference you've got it but it can take a bit of practice now if you you know you're searching for your cervix and you feel it very easily and it feels kind of firm and closed and I say it's kind of like using your index finger to touch the tip of your nose this would suggest that you're not really around ovulation so if, if you do this in your kind of day eight and you feel that kind of you know, tip of your nose type feeling, you know, wait for a few more days, wait for or try the next day and just see if, if that does lift up and open, become open and soft. Yep. Okay. So this, once women have got the hang of this, it's a great tool, but it can be a little bit intimidating and it, it can be a little bit confusing again. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it's just about breaking down those barriers of, you know, truly getting to know your body. Um so I think it's good for people to learn that that is an option and they can they can try it if they want. Absolutely. It's a great tool for the women who, can, who have used it. Mm. But again, you know, it's a, it's, I don't know if we're funny about our bodies, I suppose. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, Ellie, once we've actually predicted, you know, the next step, of course, is to, to confirm okay. that, it's, that it's happened. And I think that's really important for our patients because as I said, they're all trying to conceive. And a lot of women, by the time they come to see us, they've been trying for quite some time. And it's not, it's, it's not particularly fun to keep trying and trying and trying and trying, mm. <laughs> you know? So once we can confirm that that ovulation has happened, a lot of these women can then go, okay, well now we can take a break and not have, you know, scheduled sex essentially. Mm. So yeah. we do try and get our patients to confirm that's happened. 
And that's where basal body temperature charting uh, comes in. And I'm not sure if you do this with your patients, but for us, it's been a pretty fantastic tool. Yeah, I do it a lot. I do it myself. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I do it with my, my, my clients as well. Um, and not just for, t- for fertility, you know, literally just to understand if someone is ovulating, whether that's because they want to use it to avoid conceiving at any stage of the month, um, like a fertility awareness style thing, or if we're trying to find out if someone's longer cycle is a sign that they're not ovulating. So I, I, I often use um, temperature tracking. I think it's a, a phenomenal tool. Typically I say to women it's pain for three months. Occasionally we push it out for a few more because it can start to drive people a bit crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, they wake up and it's the first, first thing they think about. Exactly. And this is, this is the, you know, the challenge, as you just said, it does have to be, we have to be very consistent with it to make it useful. You know, the more consistent we are with taking our BBT or our basal body temperature, the better the result will be. Now, of course, what we're talking about is taking our resting body temperature. So we know that in our first half of our cycle, so pre-ovulation, our temperature is, our body temperature is slightly lower because we are governed, of course, by estrogen. Now, after ovulation, our uh, progesterone then takes over and progesterone is slightly warmer. It causes a little bit of an increase in our, in our temperature. And we actually see what we call it as a biphasic chart, meaning we see that half of the chart uh, rises and we see a nice split between those average temperatures. The challenge, as you said, is being consistent with this and making sure that you're taking it every single morning at the same time, uh, same, uh, same time in the morning, even the same side of the mouth. So the more consistent, the better. So what we are looking for is if we see that rise, if we see that biphasic chart, we can confirm that ovulation has occurred. So it's a great way of then feeding with the predictive tools, like, like, isn't it? So, you know, after three months of doing that and three months of consistently seeing that it's you know happening on day 15, it builds some confidence in, you know, you understanding your body and your ovulation. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we use it to confirm ovulations occurred, but you're absolutely right. Over time, it can absolutely be used to help as a predictive tool as well. Absolutely. Mm. Um, what else do you use to help confirm ovulation? So the other, the other test that I recommend patients uh, try, try <laughs> the, uh, the, the 21-day, progesterone 21-day uh, blood test. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I both know the problem with that and we've spoken about it just before. This test, again, this is a terrible name for this, this, uh, this test, you know, the 21-day cycle, yeah. day, 21, uh, day 21 test. The problem, the problem with this test is that it, it is, or that name is that it assumes that everyone has a 28-day cycle. Now, what we are not looking for day 21 of your cycle, what we're looking for is mid-luteal phase. Mm-hmm. So if you do your BBT chart or you're, you're temping or, you're, you're, or you assume that you ovulate on day 10, that's going to throw out that day 21. So the temptation is to just go back to 21, to the 21st day of your cycle. But what we're really looking for is about seven days after you think you ovulate. So, you know, we don't even really call it a 21-day test anymore. We call it a progesterone blood test in the mid-luteal phase. Yeah, which makes so, a lot more sense. Oh, I, I think it's very helpful for not just for us, but for patients, for, uh, you know, other practitioners, for GPs as well. I just think it makes so much more sense. And if we see that there's a positive on that, da- on that uh, blood test, then we can there's no other way to get that rise in progesterone. There's, we have to assume that 
ovulation has occurred. Amazing. Um, and yes, just so important to get that day right because otherwise someone goes and they're already at that progesterone decline or, you know, by the, you know, by the time they get that blood test. So it's just so crucial to get the day right. And then, of course, your predictive tools and your confirmation tools then feed into being able to go and get that blood test done on the right day. Absolutely. And it's, I know that it's tedious, but all of these things play a role, you know, it all pulls it all together. So, and it's not forever. It's usually only for, uh, you know, a few cycles until we start to get the hang of it. So it's well worth that investment for, for a little while. Mm. So they're all tools to help us understand if we are ovulating, which is obviously crucial to then being able to establish a fertile window. What are some of the signs that somebody mightn't be ovulating? Are there telltale signs that you know, don't necessarily need testing to, to indicate? Yes, I would say to any of our patients that have uh, a consistently long cycle, a consistently mm. short cycle, or a consistently irregular cycle, yeah. that they are potentially not ovulating. And for any of these patients, that's when we go back to the basics, which is BBT charting. Yeah. So you know, there's no point if you have an irregular cycle, there's no point in trying to do a 21-day test to confirm that you've ovulated through your a blood test. We just don't know, have enough information. So we go back to basics and we go back to temperature tracking. Mm. And without that rise in BBT, we can't. Con- we would assume that you haven't ovulated. And I will add here, if that does happen, we have to remember that about a third of women do have random anovulatory cycles. And, of course, anovulatory meaning haven't ovulated that Mm. happens for about a third of women will just randomly not ovulate and it's no big deal so if that happens once it's okay if it happens again then we you know we need to do some investigation see what's going on but absolutely if things if you do not have a regular cycle it's absolutely worth following it up and taking action because there are so many things that we can do to create ovulation or drive ovulation support ovulation and support a regular cycle Mm. And for those women who may be listening to this thinking, you know, I, I'm not looking to fall pregnant, but I'm not on, uh, I'm not on a hormonal contraception and I'm, I'm not interested in using barrier methods. So I want to understand my cycle. So I know when I'm most fertile and then, you know, when to abstain or when I have to use a barrier method, they can really apply these tools, can't like that. They can start to use the predictive um, tools and they can use the confirmation tools to really narrow down the time in which they should be abstaining from intercourse, can't they? Absolutely. And it is an effective method if done correctly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if done correctly, yeah, like being asterisks there. <laughs> Absolutely. If done correctly, you know, there's... If I do believe that if you are going to use this as a um, as a, 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 um, a means of contraception, yeah, yeah. <laughs> are going to use this as a means of contraception, you must work with someone who can work with you, understand your body to make sure that you that you can do this correctly. Because yeah. I mean, no form of contraception is one hundred percent reliable. We all know that, you know, and um, <laughs> certainly I, I wouldn't be using an app for this. You know, we know that, you know, apps are likely to predict the day of ovulation correctly about 21% of the time. And, you know, apps have also got other, there's other problems. You know, we know that, for example, the Flow app was selling their information for about three years, 2016 to 2019, was selling their information to Facebook. So you have to always be aware 
that the app is not necessarily the answer. We have so much trust in our technology, but the app is not necessarily the answer. Mm. Does that change if it's an app that's taking into account um, like basal body temperature tracking and um, like luteinizing hormone testing? Yes, it does. So the 21% that I just said, sorry, Al, you're correct. The 21% um, correctly is based on a calendar method app. Yep. So that's when you put in the first day of uh, your bleed um, all the way through to your last day. So you're entering the data of your of your uh, cycle. Your uh, and that essentially works as a, a um on a, based on an algorithm will give you a, an estimated date now if you're using this and relying on it that's really really low 20 yeah. is just way too low so I, I wouldn't recommend it for sure absolutely not because it's essentially like a moving calendar right that is just um it's just helping you to take whatever length your cycle is let's say it's 30 days and basically pinpointing the middle of it and saying, well, that's when you ovulate it. So it's not actually taking into account any other data other than the length of your cycle, from my understanding, most of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just one, it's one, uh, you know, data form. It's Mm. just not enough information at all. No, definitely not enough. Um, Anything else that you want to say about ovulation? Because I do want to ask you a little bit about like actually like a healthy period, but is there anything else that you wanted to say about ovulation or tracking that we skimmed over? Uh, look, <laughs> I mean, I could talk about, I could talk about ovulation. Today. I'm incredibly boring like this. Um, but, look, I'm, I'm definitely happy to talk about uh, a healthy period because that's definitely a question that we get all the time. You know, what does a healthy cycle or a healthy period look like? Mm. Well, I think obviously a healthy cycle is one first and foremostly where you're ovulating. Then, you know, probably the next thing is, well, what is the period like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? What's your experience like? Um, so it'd be great to hear from you about sort of what you ask your clients or what um, what sort of parameters you're looking at to help determine if they've got a, you know, quote unquote healthy period. So, yeah, so if we're talking about our bleed specifically, mm. ideally we want a productive flow and we want a productive flow for, for at least two days, but we want bleeding for about three days up to about five to six days. Now, of course, everyone is different. And sometimes, you know, and as you know, all sorts of things can impact our period. So if you are, for the most part, having, you know, roughly what we'll go through now, a, a healthy period, that's fine. And if you have one off, one here and there that doesn't fit that uh, description, I'm not overly worried about it, mm. to be honest. What that means is you've got something else in your life. And if you're, as long as you're addressing that, then there's not a problem. You know, I, I do go back on this quite a lot, Ellie, about, you know, once in, it's fine and it's not get worried about it because I think there is also a lot of stress about having a perfect period. I would agree with you. Yeah. And I think pain is a really big one. I think, you know, a lot of people kind of panic because now we're seeing this, a lot of information, particularly through social media, that we shouldn't have any pain when we get our period. And I actually think for a lot of us, that's actually just a little bit unrealistic. I don't think necessarily that we should be in pain, but I think it's a little bit optimistic to say we shouldn't at least have a sensation. We have to remember that our period uh, our uterus is a muscle and our uterus is contracting when we have our, our period. Do we also have more inflammation? You know, all sorts of things are going on at that particular time. So a little bit of sensation, dull ache, uh, abdomen, perhaps dull ache, uh, lower back, you know, but can carry on your day is mm. completely acceptable and I would not be worried or concerned about this. 
If you are getting to the point that you're taking painkillers every cycle, if you're getting to the point that you feel really, you know, nauseated or unwell or you're vomiting, you know, these are extreme red flags. And, and, and of course, you know, we're looking, you know, my gut instinct when someone says something like that is, are we looking at something like endo, for example? Mm. And when I talk to patients who have got endo, I would just say one of the common things that I see with all of my patients with endo is that they are the most gracious people on the planet. They say things like, yes, but I'm one of the lucky ones because I'm only vomiting for one day a month, not like my friend who has it for three days. You know, we're just like these women are just next level, amazing. Yeah, the threshold. Absolutely. So, look, I would say, you know, and, and we know, you know, the classification for, um, for diagnosing endo is changing too. So, you know, we would look for things like pain and extremely heavy bleeding and heavy bleeding, you know, a lot of patients are again, and I'm sure that you find this again, when we start talking about this with your patients, because we don't talk about it with our friends, how heavy is your period? Mm. You know, a lot of them will say, I have a heavy period for two days. Now what they really mean is I have a productive flow. So a heavy period might be, you know, if you have a shower and you get out of the shower, you'll be dripping before you get to your room. You know, that's one of uh, one of my patients described it like like that to me. Yep. You know, if you're changing your pad or tampon or cup every hour, that is heavy flow and that's a red flag, absolutely. Yep. But ideally we want to see uh, a productive flow for two days and that means you're maybe changing your couple pad or tampon maybe two or three times a day or period as, um, as well, which is another good tool. Yep. Minimal pops, minimal pain, blood should be bright red, um, uh, with no kind of brownie tapering off towards the end. No brownie tapering off towards the end. Did you say no brown? No little. No brownie tapering off, or very little brownie tapering off. Sometimes, look again. Again, it, it can happen from time to time. If it's something that happens every single month, then we want to look into it. Yeah. Okay. But that's so helpful because, like, yeah, like you said, like heavy. It's so subjective and because because it's not something that's talked about it's something I can only compare it you know to the year before and the year before and you know the year before that so understanding you know you know what we're looking to I guess clinically is heavy you know that um, going through a tampon or a cup in more than an hour um, will definitely help people to understand you know what their version of heavy looks like so absolutely it just puts like a quantifiable um uh, number on it i suppose and and it is confusing because you know we don't talk about it but again we should we should be talking about it yes definitely um i had a client sorry you go you go i see that and look in terms of the length of our cycle we want to be aware that the length of our cycle can change at different times of our month as well. So a lot of, and I, I think I just spoke about this before, a lot of patients kind of get a little bit concerned when they don't have that 28 day cycle, which not that many people do. Mm. We also know that at different times that length will change. So we know when our, in our teenage years, it's quite normal to have a, a longer time between periods. So a longer cycle length, because it's almost like our brain and our uterus are just still trying to communicate and trying to work it out. We also know, and this is another one that comes up commonly for me in clinic and perhaps it does for you as well, post-pill we see changes with oh, um, yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah, now there was, there was a study, and I talk about this one quite a lot. This was, it is an older study. It's from 2002, so it is an older study, but it looked at two very big groups of women, um, and it was actually, it took place in Germany. What they actually found was that looking at 175 women 
who had taken the oral contraceptive pill. Now they compared this to another group of 284 who had never been on the contraceptive pill. What they found is that coming off the pill, about 58% of women would have an ovulatory cycle, but it was quite statistically significant that it would take up to nine months to regain a cycle regularity. Mm. It's basically a one in five chance. that If you go on the pill, sorry, a one in two chance. If you go on the pill and come off it, you can't expect to have, a, you know, an ovulatory cycle straight off the bat. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a fear, you know, these, these, what I would say is if you are coming off the pill and I'm sure you work with lots of women who are trying to come off the pill the right way, if you come off the, the pill in the right way and support your body, you're going to increase your chance of going straight into a regulatory uh, cycle. Yeah. But there are no guarantees. So if you come off the pill and you do not have an, an ovulatory cycle straight off the bat, at that point, I would absolutely not panic, but I would take action because you can sit and wait for nine months, yeah. you know, knowing that statistically you're likely to have a, a regular cycle by nine months, or you can take action. And there are so many things that you can do, you know, with the food that you eat or with, you know, acupuncture or herbs or supplements, there are things that we can do to get that regular cycle back. Yeah, there are, there are plenty of things that you can do. Um, in fact, I had a client who was, I must have seen her two weeks ago and I've been working with her for six months and, and we're getting to the 12-month point of her coming off her pill and getting to the six-month mark and I was just like, I hope this period comes soon. I hope it comes soon. We've got all the ducks in a row. We've, we've done everything. And um, my last phone call with her, she says, I got my period. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the best news ever because it was taking longer than I expected. Not that we can ever categorically say, you know, it will come on X date, but um, it's so, so satisfying when women get their cycle back. I agree. It is so rewarding for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And ultimately people come off the pill for a reason, don't they? Either because they do want to fall pregnant or because they just want to ovulate again and they want to get the benefits of having healthy progesterone levels and normal estrogen levels and, and get synthetic hormones out of the system. So whatever the goal is post pill, like getting that period back is just, it's so exciting and relieving. Oh, just a pair of period nerds here. (laughs) Definitely. Um, But, you know, I hope we've helped listeners to become a bit nerdy about their their cycle and their period, but their cycle and understanding what they're looking for. And I really think, think you've helped with that. So thank you, Jenna. Oh, gosh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and listening to me chat about cervical mucus and cervixes and all, all the interesting stuff. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat about it. We've certainly broken some barriers down. Um, there might be some people who want to talk to you one-on-one, so maybe could you share a little bit about your clinic? Um, I know you're based in Sydney, but do you work with people virtually? So at the moment, I don't work with any patients virtually at the moment, but I've got two amazing practitioners that are working with me. Uh, We've got another um, practitioner about to start. So we'll have plenty of women who are happy to chat with you, of our practitioners who work virtually. So the best way to contact us at the moment is through our website. That's thefertilitysuite.com.au. There's also a stack of information there um, 
it's free. There's a, a lot of information for free to read to have in terms of fertility, of identifying ovulation, some of these things that we've spoken about. There is information for men as well. Um, and there's also um, my ebook, which was finished last year called Trying an Evidence-Based Guide to Conceiving Sooner. And that's all available on the website as well. Incredible. Um, so I'll pop links to that, links to your socials in the show notes for everybody. Um, if this has interested you, definitely start following Jenna and head to, head to the website because there is a ton of content there, um, which I think you'll find really helpful if you found this conversation helpful. So thank you, Jenna. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Now, before you move on to the next thing, get a pen and write down one thing that inspired you from this week's show. That one thing you know you need to go away and start doing differently. Please also remember that this show is not intended to diagnose or treat any health conditions. So if you need tailored support and you'd like to do that with me, please head on over to my website, nutritionally.com forward slash work with me, where you can learn what it means to work with me.